Hello, everybody, and welcome again to Wednesday Night Live and a very special commemoration of this particular Wednesday Night Live is that it's the first of the year 2021, almost said January 221. Um, it's a bit redundant if it's the first one of 2021. It, it would be January, wouldn't it? My name is Ron Crawford. I'm the pastor of the Father's Church in Dallas, Texas, and we are very excited to enter into a year that we believe God is going to be honing and developing our prophetic skills and our prophetic relationship with Him uh, from a pneumaticos perspective, which means a deeper gleaning that's a biblical word. You may not know it. It may not be in your John Hagee Bible. I'm not picking on John Hagee. I'm just saying uh, it's not in the King James, the Fire Bible, the NIV, the, the uh, Living Bible, or any other translation. Um, but it is, it is used throughout the New Testament. So we, we're a pneumaticos people, which means God is wanting to show us the things in his word that are that are deeper than surface. And I am grateful for that. So from a pneumaticos perspective, we are looking into this new year and we're believing that God is going to be taking us uh, in partnership with him along some very uh, deep pathways of prophetic understanding. Now, by prophecy, again, when I was growing up, everybody in church thought prophecy meant who's the Antichrist and when's Jesus coming. That would be a measure of prophetic understanding, but that's like saying the only thing you get out of your refrigerator is bottled water. I mean, there's so much more in there, and the, the principle of it is, yes, it could provide that, but it's, there's so much more that you could do there. And the prophetic is the way God wants us to move. Um, we should covet to prophesy, which simply means you have died to yourself, you've died to your own understanding. It doesn't mean you surrender everything you've learned. But perhaps traditions need to be let go of. But you die. Prophecy is martyria in the New Testament, which you know what a martyr is. So you die to your own opinions, to the way that seems right to you, which the end thereof is destruction. And you commit yourself to what God, what God is saying. And so that's the essence of prophecy. And so many people are in the land today in Christian circles, and they prophesy. And I, I don't, I don't really detect any measure of yielding or dying to self. For some, a prophetic gift is a means for advancement, or a means of showmanship, or a, a means of being able to influence, and somehow that gratifies their um, their pride or the iniquities that are always looking for a voice in and through them. But a true prophet of the Lord is going to be submitted to his ways, most of all, and they are not going to be motivated 
by their own emotional or prideful requirements. And they will say what it is that God says. And when he's not saying something, they're silent. I, I have seen prophets who really take it to the, far, to the far other perspective, who are just brash, and they, they, they kick it and take names. They, they don't really consider um, they don't really consider the circumstance. Um, and I, and I think out of all the prophets in the in the in the Old Testament, Elijah was probably that way. You know, Elisha says, "Can I go and kiss my father and say goodbye? You do what you want to do. You know, you follow me or not." I mean, in in that, he was telling the young man, "You're going to have to die to self," but the way he said it was was really gruff. <laughs> And um, and I, I I was around a prophet at a conference that we were both ministering in in France, and this guy was well known. In fact, on the night, <coughs> excuse me, that he spoke, there were television crews that were f- videoing this to send send back to, I think, into Africa. This was a white guy. I just want to clarify that. But you never knew what was going to come out of his mouth. I mean, the translator who was translating for him was a lovely woman. And he made some real shots at her weight and um, just embarrassing stuff. And, and she, bless her heart, I felt so badly for her. Maybe that's the pastoral arm in me. But um, the point is, is that, and and to me, I think that kind of thing is, maybe a bit twisted as well from an iniquity of telling people off. Some people want spiritual giftings just so that they can tear up Jack. But the true prophet is going to be dead to themselves or should strive to be and solely wanting what God is wanting to do. And to say what he says to say and to stop it there. And I, I know I'm not saying it's easy to, to handle a true prophetic gifting. I'm not saying that's easy at all. Uh, every person, when you die to self, I mean, you know, Jack Hayford said, the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps drawing, trying to crawl off the altar. You know, from Monty Python, I'm not dead yet. And, you know, that's why the Apostle Paul said, I die daily. But the true prophetic is not just demonstrating giftings. It is honing those giftings in meekness under the direct desire to fulfill whatever it is that God is doing. And so I believe that we are privileged this year to be teaching a great number of things about the prophetic from a pneumaticus standpoint. And I, I ask that the Lord will direct us. And so 
Over the uh, course of the past few weeks, we have been looking at a concept from the Old Testament known as the Sha'al. And if you've been paying attention at all to the teachings over these past five weeks or so, you should know what that word means. It should not be foreign to you now. But in essence, for those of you who just are tuning in for the first time, it is a word that means to inquire in a very intimate um, point of relationship. By intimate, I mean things are stripped away. You, the essence of who you are is communing. And you find this word used throughout the Old Testament, and the definition of it is shown forth like when Joseph was in the Egyptian prison, like when Caleb's daughter came to her father and asked for an addition to her dowry to include not just land, but water that would supply the land. And you see those kinds of integral points of commune, and, and that's where we gain our most definitive explanation of the term, how it's used by the author, how it's used by the Spirit of God. If you just look in your, um, if you just look in your Bible dictionaries and your, your lexicons, yes, you can gain a lot of insight there, and we thank God for that. But you may not get what I just said. And then immediately you say, well, Pastor Ron's saying this, and I can't find it, so he must be just talking out of his hat. Well, I don't wear a hat. How did the Holy Spirit use that word throughout the Scripture? And what flavoring of connotation do you see echoing from that? And so then you carry that, that gleaning of the meaning of the word, the gleaning of the meaning, to how that the kings and the prophets were able to come before God through use of this mode of inquiry, Sha'al, and ask of him. And so that's really where we are. And I think that in this year, God is bringing about the awakening of the Sha'al prophet. So I would just say that to really function in Sha'al or to ask, ask of me concerning my sons, concerning things to come, the work of my hands, Sha'al. It's not just, oh God, we come to you today because five prophets from this big organization said to do this and we're raising our voice and putting a quiver in it, you know. Sha'al begins with a deeper relationship with God. You know, a lot of people function out of their giftings, but they don't really spend a lot of time in commune with God. You, you cannot Sha'al without that commune. Sometimes I watch professional sports, baseball, um, Football, yeah, I won't list them all. But I'll see a player, say, for instance, in baseball, who has is a five-tool player, 
who has all kinds of skills. You know, they can hit, they can run, they can throw. But with all those giftings, they don't seem to have a clue as to how the game is played. They don't act like they know the rules. They don't act like they they understand a scenario that they may be in in that particular inning. And and you think this guy is doing more damage just relying on his giftings than if you put some scrub at the end of the bay at the end of the bench in who actually could glean what was happening at that moment in the game and do the smart thing. You know, like we watch football and we see a quarterback drop back in the pocket and he's got an arm like a cannon. Maybe he can run, but he's kind of an airhead. And you see him throwing into coverage or just lofting a ball up in the air, a Hail Mary at the 40-yard line. And you think, what in the world are you doing? Even a kid who played football in junior high school knows that you should not do that, what you just did. Oh, you don't know the speed of the game. Well, I know whether somebody understands why they're out there and what they're doing. And, you know, it's like that in some ways with people who have giftings. Sometimes people with giftings don't don't feel they need to, they're above the rules because they so they're so much better than anybody else in height or speed or skill set and they don't pay attention to the rules and so they rise through the system quickly can't miss players and then they just demonstrate that they did not learn anything it can be that way in life you see somebody who was raised with lots of money. Well, maybe they don't have people skills because they're used to just saying what they want to say and everybody else has to just go along because this is the money and this is the clout. Sometimes, you know, the traditional airhead, some kid that was just handsome or gorgeous growing up, you know, like the old Eagles song, which used to be uh, um, in our hymnal, city girls seem to find out early how to open doors with just one smile. You rely on that, and you can come up to the door by yourself when there's no a guy there to open it for you, and you're staring at it like a calf looking at a new gate. you got to know how to open the door and go through it. And if people are always doing that for you, then... You're not going to know what to do. So prophets really need, I, I think it's what you do with what you have. It's knowing God. Everything in the spirit realm is based on relationship with God and the authority, the, the position that he gives you. You know, the, I heard a teaching, I've heard this over and over again, you know, that as soon as you're born, as born again, you've got all this authority. No, you don't. You may have the potential for authority, but if you're faithful in the small things, God makes you ruler. If you're not faithful in those things, you can have all the potential. Potential is one of the worst words in the dictionary because it's often not fulfilled. So I'd rather have somebody who's faithful in the small things 
than people that were put in position because of their height or their skill set or their intelligence in the natural and really don't know God. You know, they, they may know the God of, they may not, they may know the word of God, but they don't know the God of the word. They know how to say all the right things or what's the latest and greatest thing down the pipe, but how much do you pray? Oh, I pay other people to pray. We, at one time we had a guy from, I won't say what country in Europe, he came to one of our seminars. And he was a pastor, a very well-known pastor. And we're a praying church here. And when we would lay on our faces before God or kneel, he would go to sleep. And you knew it because he was snoring. And I could understand that when you first get someplace and you're trying to adjust to the time. But this was after a number of days. And one day at lunch, I was asking him about the prayer ministries at his church and in his ministries. And he said, um, well, I don't, I'm so busy, I don't have much time to pray, so I hire other people to pray for me. And I thought, that, that doesn't make any sense. That makes no sense at all. You know, I married this beautiful woman, and I'm so busy with my business that you know, I just hire other guys to come and take care of her. Who would do that? But yet we do that so often with God. And, um, you know, the Ephesian church that Jesus spoke to in the book of Revelation, uh, they had left their first agape. They were filled with all kinds of other tremendous giftings. But it's just um, the the the... The judgment of the Lord to them was, you need to, you need to get back to your first love. And so, you got to be, if you're going to be a Sha'al individual, ministering in a prophetic or inquiring of the Lord in whatever way He's positioned you, you need to make sure that your relationship with Him is strong. And you need to know what God's called you to do and what He's not called you to do. It's not a competition. It's not a comparison. You know, I have to admit that being a pastor, there's things that God gave to me, and I know that it was for the, for the use of what I was called to do here. It wasn't because he just thought I was the, the be-all, end-all. Because anything you are is because God has given it to you. But I I've readily admit that I had to learn how to, and I'm still learning, to govern people with strong giftings in my church. And some of them fit into the category that I was just describing. They just were gifted, and they thought that because they were gifted that they didn't have to obey the rules, that they didn't have to stay in lines of authority. And then on the other hand, you had people that God gave tremendous intercessory gifts and half the time they were moping around because they felt that God was didn't give them the giftings that other people had. Or, you know, why does pastor get all these different words? Well, he's the one that's ministering from the pulpit. You know, why would he give you a bunch of words? Are there two pulpits in this place? And so at times I would really draw back and I repented of the Lord for that, but that's another story. Um, I think that 
Sometimes we try to compensate for for other people when they just need to grow up and be what they're supposed to be. But then on the other hand, you've got to be kind. Maybe that's the apostolic pastor. You know, there are times that it's why sometimes I would just like to go out and minister in the in the many nations God has opened up to us in the many different theaters of operation and really not know many people there and just speak apostolically or prophetically because you just let it fall where it may. And you don't have to think, well, this person over here is dealing with this, so I got to be really careful what I say here, how I say it. We do that with children in our homes. You know that our kids, sometimes you can over overcompensate for their idiosyncratic behaviors or their weaknesses. But you, you sometimes, though, you, you say, well, I've got this sister who can do this. This sister here can do it too, but you've got to approach it in a different manner with her. That's part of helping people to grow. But, but it's great to be able to just go out and let it fly with the understanding that you obey the rules and you don't, you know, you don't throw out the compassion of the Lord when you're doing it. So a Sha'al person is going to be spending time with God. They're going to recognize what God's called them to be and do and what he's not called them to be and do. And they're going to gain their answers from him because of the time they've spent with him and in the way they are used to expressing. When you look at the many uses of Sha'al, you know, David was really good about inquiring of the Lord but he also inquired of people. He inquired of Jonathan, who he was knit to. And he used Sha'al in that regard. And so that kind of person is going to manifest the perspective of time spent with God wherever they are. It's like the disciples, when they, when they really did something admirable, people would say, we know these ones, they've been with Jesus. And so... The first measure of how you glean from God in Sha'al is through the time spent with him, your perspective is continually being aligned with God. We, we said this over the years when we were bringing teachings from the Word. You know, like Peter wrote of Paul, some of the things that Paul taught were hard to understand, but they were of the Lord. The idea that you have to just bring things to the church and just make it simple, make it simple, make it simple, is bogus. Do you, when you go to, when you go through school, do do you uh, do you have your teacher? You say to your teacher, "Make it simple, make it simple." Things you don't learn anything. You've got to be pressed to go beyond what you know, and that's going to cause you to invest. It was the kids that sat in the back of the room and just jerked around all the time who said, this is too hard. And then they wouldn't do their work. And when they don't do their work, they don't learn. But one of the things that we, we understood here was that if people were not praying, they probably were not going to be either willing or, or empowered to gain an enlightenment in the word for what was being taught. 
In other words, if they weren't praying, they weren't getting it. And because then if they weren't getting it, they wouldn't study it. And then they would become an opponent. Failed grace would cause them to move about in bitterness and judgments, earthly bitter root judgments. And they would go try to defile many. But it was always because they weren't praying. I mean, really seeking God and submitting to him. Do you know that people can pray and they can emerge with the same nasty attitudes that they had, what God was trying to cleanse them from? And then sometimes they'll say, well, God told me this. And, and, and I, as a pastor, in a position that I had a right to say this, I would say, there's no way in the world God told you that. That's you and your iniquities and your jealousies imitating the voice of God. And you're blaming it on him, taking his name in vain. I knew someone who said that type of thing over and over again over the years. And he would hide behind God. If there was ever anything that he didn't really want to do or he was insecure about or he really wasn't in favor of, he'd say, God told me. Well, once that's thrown out, it's like a trump card. You can't, you can't do anything with that. And finally, those iniquities rise up. The enemy will find a way. It becomes stronger and stronger. And it's sad in a way. That's how false prophets arose in the Old Testament. They recognized they had some measure of gift and some measure of standing. And so they would do hocus pocus and the enemy would be right there in lying spirits and in other areas to say what they thought the king wanted to hear. And that would give them money and power. False prophets functioned on iniquity. I, I love what the prophet said when he went into the king of, of uh, the northern and the southern kingdom. And he looked over at the guy from the north and he said, I don't have any respect for you at all. If it wasn't for the king of the south here, I wouldn't even be here. <laughs> that, that is quite a passage. It's the Valley of Ditches passage. So a Sha'al person is going to continually have to die to self. And... I was listening to a teaching the other day about prophets and uh, because I'm praying about a particular ministry that God laid on my heart. And I'm not listening judgmentally. I'm certainly not listening to, to teach anything to you. Uh, <laughs> I would never do that. I, I would never. It's not a book club. You know, I don't get up and say, okay, I read this book. Let me teach what this guy has. What, where's the apostolic in that? The word of God is alive. He's always speaking things. Listen to the Lord and say what he says to say. But this teaching was talking about how that, um, you know, dealing with prophets is one of the hardest tasks that you have. Um, you know, in the end time, the false prophet is going to be a major, a major uh, venue for for the enemy, for the beast and the antichrist, and you you really have to 
You really have to guard over yourself when you're dealing with prophecy. So the Sha'al, I, I wanted us to look at how God gave direction, some of the ways that God gave direction in the Sha'al. Now, we have to we have to be a people in this year with the darkness that's upon our lands and the gross darkness that seems to be upon people. We have to know how to glean his light and to follow it. And so I want us to begin by looking at somewhat of a negative example, but in looking at it, it shows how God really wants to speak to people in authority in our day. And it's found concerning the, the life of King Saul. First Samuel chapter 28, uh, we're going to look at verses 6 through 9. And this is indicative of when um, Saul was really not communing with God. I mean, one of the first, one of the times that he got in trouble with Samuel was when he was waiting for Samuel and he admitted that he did not offer supplication. He just was watching things in the natural and trying to preserve his position. He was not in supplication prayer. I feel badly for Saul. I think that Anybody that's doing something for the first time is, is really going to encounter lots of challenges and lots of failures. And Samuel, who didn't, take, who didn't uh, tolerate fools, he, uh, he mourned for Saul. So there was something tender about this man. And... Uh, but here, we we recognize that um, uh, in, that Samuel had died, and the the Lord was not speaking to Saul. God was not speaking to Saul. Why? Because Saul wasn't spending time. With God, Saul knew how to spend time with God. This is a guy who laid naked on the ground and prophesied under the influence of the Spirit. This is a guy that could be among the prophets and sing and prophesy. This, he knew how to spend time with God, but he didn't do it. And so, First Samuel twenty-eight. It says in verse 6, when Saul attempted to Sha'al of Yahweh, Yahweh did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Now, I, the rest of it, I said 6 through 9, but this is when Saul went to see a Star Wars character, the Witch of Endor, and um, Elijah comes up and uh, Elijah, no, uh, Samuel comes up and says, why are you trying to Sha'al with me? It's interesting. So what are these things by which um, the Sha'al 
would gain directive concerning the plan of God, what are they? Well, prophets, first of all. We're talking about prophets. And, you know, Moses was told that if there's a prophet in the land, I'm going to speak to that person by dreams and visions. Dreams indicate overall purpose. Visions indicate direction for the immediate future. And prophets could come and aid the king and the kingdom in those two ways. So there wasn't any voice coming to him from a human. God was not ministering to the king in dreams. He wasn't, Saul was not speaking to God in intercession. He was not spending time before God. And so the dream life was gone. What about Urim? Now, I think we need to talk about this for a couple of minutes because this is part of the Sha'al. You know, we, we recognize that like in Numbers twenty seven twenty one, when Moses was transitioning and he was imparting to Joshua, he says that Eliezer, God said that Eliezer the priest would minister to Joshua and that the mishpat, the judgment of God's ways, would be communicated through the Urim to Joshua. Now, the Urim and the Thummim, it, it's, it's like something that Indiana Jones would have been searching for. Maybe Spielberg could make a new movie. Of course, I don't know who he's going to get to play uh, Indy, because yeah, Harrison Ford's getting up there. Um, Sheila Booth did not, or Labeef, I never say his name right. Shia, Shia. He he's not going to do it anyway. I I digress. But the Urim and the Thummim were connected to the breastplate of the priest. What the Bible indicates is the breastplate of judgment or mishpat. And they mean light and perfection. Now, the breastplate indicated what the people should be in their tribal connections and what they then should do together in unity and harmony. And so this Urim and the Thummim were in a little bag which was called the Urim, and it hung there on the breastplate of the priest, the breastplate of judgment. In the New Testament, it's the breastplate of of righteousness or righteous vision in partnering with God. But in the Old Testament, it was judgment. How does the mishpat, how do we align with what God has said in the law, in his word, and and how do we base ourselves on that? Kind of interesting. Urim means light or lights. Thummim means perfection. But nobody knows how these things worked. Nobody, nobody knows what they even looked like. They disappeared from the pages of history, just like all the other stuff that we read about, the Levitical furnishings. And, um, but we, we can get a picture of what these meant. Now, Urim, light, Thummim, perfection. The principle of two 
in the, throughout the Bible. What are some of those? Well, spirit of judgment, mishpat, and burning, function. The ways of God, which is light, and the mind of God. The chronos, overall timetable of God, and the kairos moment. The logos, the eternal word, and the rhema, the highlighting of that word for the moment. The apostle and the prophet. You go down the line and you see that principle of two. So there are two things here. The light, which to me represents the ways of God, and the, the perfection, the thumum, which indicates the immediacy of direction. These two things were together. And I suspect that you're dealing with a people where the Spirit of the Lord would come upon them. And sometimes God would, God's Spirit would really influence a person, like when it's said about Daniel, the Spirit of the gods is in you. That was from a foreign queen. Um, but, but Pentecost had not happened yet. Jesus had not come. Uh, grace and truth is not released to everybody. So it was Old Covenant. And I think that God used this Urim and Thummim to demonstrate the way we should be moving as priests before him in accordance with our position in God, that we would understand his ways and that we would understand how he wants to do a thing in the step-by-step of walking in faith. So, for instance, it is likely that God, there wasn't anything magical about these. It wasn't like a talisman. It doesn't say that the Holy Spirit indwelled these things. It wasn't some magical thing, although I'm sure the people would have worshipped it. They worshipped everything else. They worshipped the serpent on a pole. They tried to find Moses' body to worship him. I guess they wanted to have some place to go to murmur. They wanted to find Elijah's body. Couldn't find it. So I would imagine that when there needed to be a directive and the high priest was brought in, they would want to know, first of all, is this what God's ways are for us? And if that is confirmed, what is the direction that he would want us to take? Yay or nay? Um, right or left? Hot or cold? I suspect this thumum uh, element was directional and the thumum, representing the lights or the ways of God, was an affirmation that they were in an overall sense following the right pathway. We know this now. You know, there, there are times when we pray and God says, all right, this coming season, I am wanting to do this. I'm going to show myself this is my this is my will to do this. And we know 
It's affirmed. It is there. That's understanding the ways of God. But do we know what we're supposed to be doing every day because we know that? Well, I can tell you from experience, we don't, even right now. I know what the Spirit of the Lord has said about this year. But the walk of faith, what we're supposed to be doing until God directs exactly what steps we're supposed to take in conjunction with his ways. We don't do anything. We wait. It's like David who sha'al before the Lord, should I go and attack the Philistines when they were going to go to the enemy's camp and take back what he stole from him? Or when David knew that in another instance, waiting for the stirring in the mulberry trees. But they were ready. They knew they were supposed to go and defeat the Philistines. They knew it. It was the second battle in in very short amount of time with these people. David could have done it in his own understanding. Man, we killed them the first time. Why they're back again, I don't know. But, man, we laid it on them the first time. We can just go down there and drive them out of here. No. Was that God's will? Yeah. But how to do it? That's what David had to wait for. And when you hear the stirring in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you go. You see, sometimes people rightly determine this is what God wants to do. Yay, my people. And then they decide that they're going to put together a plan to accomplish it. It does not work that way. You can be in the right time doing the wrong thing and lose badly. So the Urim and the Thummim really demonstrate a spiritual principle that we understand well and hopefully will continue to apply. The ways of God, knowing what his seven spirits wants to do, want to do, and then to glean the steps of faith, the mind of Christ, the fivefold directive. Got to know both of them. Uh, you know, I, I think sometimes God lets us know his mind to lead us into a point where we'll actually calm down and know him in his spirit. But uh, you got to have both. So the Urim meaning lights and the Thummim meaning perfection or function is judgment and burning. It's Kronos and Kairos. Do you see that? And this is part of the Sha'al. But in all three of those instances with, with Saul, how, why would God speak to him in a dream when Saul had not been spending his waking hours before God? Why would there be prophets who came when Saul wouldn't listen to the great prophet who had just died and who was pining for that guy to come up out of the dead and give him some words? And why would, why would uh, the Urim and the Thummim of the high priest be of any benefit to Saul 
when he was more interested in pleasing the people. He wasn't dead to his own qualms. Now, how, how did this work? Did, it, did the Urim light up? Did it light up in a specific color? We don't know. Was it an affirmation as it lit? I'm sure since it's called lights, it did do something like that. But I don't want to add to the word. But I'm sure that that affirmed an overall pathway. The thumum? Did, was it like a compass point? If you needed a direction, which way do we go? It, did it get hot or cold to tell you move now or wait? Did it, um, was it, you know, there's one lexicon I was reading and they were indicating that sometimes this word was used to, an offshoot of this word was used to describe either roughness or smoothness. Did it indicate that kind of thing to the feel to say to the people you're going to be entering into some hard times, some rough times, so you better batten down the hatches? Or is it smooth so that you're going to have clear sailing? You know, you just you just um, don't act lasciviously, but just don't, don't penny pinch right now. I, I think... I think that this is probably what these things did, and they were attached to the breastplate of judgment that would help people to fulfill the following of the of the of the law of God. So, how does the Sha'al work for us? Um, I think we are going to see the prophetic developed in new ways. And people become skilled in a way beyond what they've known. I also think that um, we should we should um, expect for God to be activating our dreams in new ways, and I, and I think that God is going to be affirming the commune with His seven spirits. And specific point-by-point direction. Uh, I think one of the unique things, 1 Samuel 10, 21, when they, they were, Samuel had asked, you know, we're going to anoint a king, let's bring all the tribes. And he, al- he already knew what God was doing, but he was wanting the people to participate in the, in the process. And they couldn't find Saul. And so they Sha'al of Yahweh. He makes the people Sha'al of Yahweh to determine where Saul is, and he's hiding among the stuff. It's kind of interesting. Samuel was trying to bring those people into a measure of commune, even in the selection of the king, even though Samuel knew he wanted the people to participate in it. Um, one time... Saul asked Elohim, he shawled of, of Elohim about a direction, but Elohim did not answer. Sometimes that's your answer. If you, sometimes if you're not walking with God, you can say all the right words and it ain't going to work. 
But sometimes a no answer or no answer at all, it means wait. And if you keep inquiring pretty soon, you're going you're gonna to conceive, oh, did you hear that? I think God's saying go. And you're going to have trouble. And once, um, you know, there's just lots of illustrations of that. But I, I speak over us in this year that we would be people who are sharpened in the prophetic and that we would be able to teach the deeper things uh, of how to walk truly in the prophetic from a pneumaticos perspective. Now you hear me, from a pneumaticos perspective. You know, if, I, if I'm working for Pepsi, I'm aware of what Coca-Cola is doing, and I'm aware of what Dr. Pepper is doing, and I'm aware of what all the other beverage makers are doing, but I don't really care. I want to do what is best for my company. And so I'm not saying we're going to borrow teachings from other, from other prophetic groups. We don't need to. We've been commissioned by God to develop the walk of the saints. We can be aware, but this is our baby from God. And so we're going to develop the schools of the prophets from a pneumaticos perspective. And, and in that, we're going to be asking God to enhance our understandings of them. Maybe we should call it the Urim school. That sounds too kind of weird. People would mispronounce it. I won't say what they might say instead. You can ask Fran about that. She can come up with a number of funny rejoinders. Uh, if we said the Thummim school, they'd think we were speaking about an actress. Uma Thummim. Uh, but I pray and declare over you that you will know God in a deeper way than you ever have and that your gifting as saints would really come to a bright burning in the Lord and that God would direct us during this time when darkness and gross darkness is trying to captivate the world and we would welcome the light of his ways and that it would shine and we would then know what direction he wants us to go and I pray that he'll guide us in these instrumental things you know in the end time, the saints and the prophets are the two major influences doing battle against the enemy's intent. On behalf of our Lord, we're, we're doing battle. And I, I think that the saints will be uh, the basis, uh, a saint mentality will be the basis for how we function in the end and then prophets will come alongside that and they will they will say this is the agenda we must walk together in this it's like the apostles and the prophets the saints will be the apostolic movement of that end time 
So we've got to begin to lay the groundwork for that connectivity. And we've got to, the, the coupling together. We've got to make ports and landing pads for an, uh, uh, an understanding of what we've seen in the Word, which is largely not out there in the prophetic world. And God, why is that? Well, God is creating a great hunger for what he's put on our table. And I'm not saying our from a prideful standpoint. It's a responsibility God has given us. Yeah, I'm going to defend what God has given us. I'm not going to waffle with it. And I'm not going to, God help me never to, um, to water it down to get along, to go along to get along. But I, I, I recognize we have a responsibility to guard over this thing. And if you're going to move the ark, you better do it according to the way God said to. If you put it on, if you let boards and big wheels direct you and you extend man's hand, that's not going to do, the end of that doesn't do very well. But for you personally, continue to walk under the covering of the blood of Jesus. Know that this is a year of tremendous breakthrough. Let us continue to dwell in the light of God's ways and let us be sensitive to the way he will direct. Where he says, go this way, go that way, don't go anywhere at all, stop, um, cast your sail to the wind, it's smooth sailing, or batten down the hatches, boys, it's going to be rough. We need to know those things. The judgment and the burning, the demonstration of that burning, that functionality. We need to we need to know that. That's what the Urim and Thummim is. And, and that's, uh, maybe that's, maybe that's what we're supposed to be uh, trying to bring about in our school. Yeah, we can teach on dreams and visions. And yes, we can teach on the Sha'al. Yes, we can teach about how to demonstrate prophetic giftings and what it really means to be prophetic, but well, when you're dealing in darkness, you need the light. And if, if, you're, if you're dealing in darkness, you need to know what direction. You need to have specific mandates from God. He will give it to us. I speak blessing over you. I speak health and healing to you. I speak favor to you. I speak that you would walk in the agape and that fear will not grip you. May we not move in anger or um, in any other kind of emotional foible, but may we move with God and may we know him in a deeper way. Father, I ask you for this. This is for your purpose. Help me. Help our leaders, appointed leaders, and help every person who is at the helm of their own life to walk in cadence with the way you direct us. Thank you, Father. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you all. Thanks for joining me today. And may the Spirit of the Lord richly be with you uh, as we proceed through the rest of this week and enter into this new year. 
hope to be back with a prayer primer on Friday, and uh, we look forward to being with you again on Sunday. Till then, God bless.